What's up, everyone? Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm Paul Keeling. And I'm Jordan Puga. And today we're going to be covering 1997's Prefontaine. Uh, this is going to continue our series on running. Uh, we've actually already covered a film about Steve Prefontaine in Without Limits. So part of this conversation will definitely be a bit of comparison and contrast, but they do stand out with their own merits. Uh, and we'll definitely get into that. But as we like to do on Cinematic Underdogs, we want to take you back in the in the hot tub time machine to 1997. <laughs> <laughs> really got to get some sound effects, man. But anyways, hit that type hot tub time machine. We in 1997. And in the week of 1997, that weekend, Jerry Maguire was in theaters. Another classic, classic sports movie that we have covered already. Make sure you guys follow that. Click on that link if you haven't heard our thoughts on that. So, Paul, why don't you give us a little rundown of the rest of this box office weekend? Yeah, I mean, it's a great weekend. Some of these we covered with that Jerry Maguire episode, but I mean, we have everything from The English Patient, which we definitely talked about. Plug myself, I wrote a long piece since, and I I hadn't seen it in that podcast, but I had since watched it. So that was fun. I think I was inspired by our conversation on the podcast to watch it subconsciously. Um, That's what we do here, inspire. (laughs) That is what we do, right? Um, Even ourselves, if that's pretty much the the main audience that gets inspired. It's a very self-reflexive podcast. Check off our letterbox list pretty much. Uh, We just listen to it constantly ourselves. We're the biggest fans of our own podcast. So the People versus Larry Flint, great Woody Harrelson flick about uh, the porn industry. We have Fierce Creatures. We have The Relic. We have Jingle All the Way, which is the greatest Arnold and Christmas movie of almost all time. There's- Dude, this this I have this debate often with a lot of people. A lot of people don't like this movie, but it's got everything. It's got Sinbad. It's got action figures. It's got fights with little people. It has bomb threats. It's got everything. It's not even telling you the plot of this movie, and it's a Christmas movie. Cannot recommend it. If you haven't seen Jingle All the Way, go go see it this holiday season. Yeah, and it's got like the hysteria of shopping during Christmas, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it still goes on. I pay less attention, but I remember being a kid, and like every year you have that story at a walmart someone like pulls out a gun and starts shooting because it still happens fight. it still happens i still get out there for black fries and stuff like that occasionally it's you know it gets off yeah so this is a definitely a, a very realistic depiction as well of christmas shopping in america it's like the black friday movie to be honest even though i think they're like on the 24th trying to find the toy yeah but- which is still, I think, I love that plot line, though. It's such a good Christmas plot line, though. I've, I've been in those situations with the last-minute gift shopping, right? That's such a good plot building for tension and stuff. I, I like it. Can't recommend it enough. I'd yes. say, I'd throw it like this. If you're going to watch Jingle All the Way, you want to lead your way into that with, like, something like Twins, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito, like an awesome one. What's another good Schwarzenegger comedy you might, that might get you in the mood for that? A junior, maybe Kindergarten oh. Cop? That's what I was, was going to say. You took it right out of my brow. Kindergarten Cop or Junior is another excellent one. Not a comedy one I throw out there, same kind of period that's a kind of overlooked film as Last Action Hero. Very good Schwarzenegger film. It kind of doesn't get the credit it deserves. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, speaking of comedy, we have Beverly Hills Ninja this weekend, uh, coming at number three. So a good Chris Farley film. Oh, I uh, love that one. And it's got Robin Shaw from Mortal Kombat in that one. is playing like his little sidekick in that awesome, awesome comedy. I don't remember much of it all. I'm, I'm kind of jealous. Uh, would you consider it a sports movie? No, I feel, I feel like it was more like in the Kung Fu realm. Like, I feel like it was Kung Fu, almost like mixed with like spy elements going on. They're almost like 
Kung Fu with Ace Ventura kind of plot thing going on uh, with the love interest, something getting stolen, as I recall, from Robin Shaw's clan. Chris Farley's got to get him back. I love Chris Farley, and I can't believe it's it's kind of a blank spot. I feel like I had to have seen it, but I always get that one in Beverly Hills Cop mixed up in my head, and I feel like maybe I have not seen it. So full, full disclosure, a little bit shame to say that. And what would you say your favorite Chris Farley film is? Black Sheep. Black Sheep was my favorite one. Yeah, definitely. Tommy Boy is probably a close second, but Black Sheep. And it's also because I shot Black Sheep in the theaters before I saw Tommy Boy. So I went backwards. But yeah, David Spade really cracked me up in, in Black Sheep. I know we're talking about Farley, but gotta shout out David Spade too. He gets underlooked in a lot of these movies with Farley and he has some solid work in there too. Yeah, I uh, love David Spade's more recent one. It's something about Missy in the name and it's really, really funny comedy. And I love Chris Farley's documentary. It's it's great uh, just to get like who he was behind the scenes, his kind of darker vices, but also his athletic energy that he brought, his like indomitable will to make people laugh at all costs. He was such a larger than life persona and just like truly would go above and beyond to make people laugh. And very, very physical comedy. He just went all in every time. And that documentary gives you a really nice glimpse into just how committed he was to his craft. Because, you know, someone like Chris Farley, you think like, oh, he's just kind Mm -hmm. of famous because he's outlandish and overweight. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's part of his shtick. And and willing to, you know, humiliate himself on screen. But there is so much more to Chris Farley. Mm -hmm. And we were talking also before we got on about Adam Sandler and his last, um, not his last ever, but his, his most recent Netflix stand-up special, he gets really teary about Chris Farley and does a song. It's so good. It's so, so good. It's so poignant. So yeah, definitely feeling the Chris Farley vibes today for for whatever reason. (laughs) What else on this list sticks out to you on on these like top 24, we'll call it, because at 24, we have Prefontaine. Um, Another one I'd say is Scream, of course, is a big movie of of our generation as well. The one that starts off this huge franchise, again, reviving interest in Wes Craven again. Not that interest ever left Wes Craven, but yeah, you got to mention Scream for sure. I just saw Scream 4 at Will Johnson from Cinephile Hissy Fit's live podcast showing out here in Phoenix at the Film Bar. Uh, That was a blast. That was a total blast. And we're going to be on their podcast soon. So just a heads up, everyone, we were invited. And I think we're going to probably defend No Country for Old Men. So we're going to get out of the sports realm for a podcast on a guest episode and get to defend that classic, classic movie. Defend it vigorously. It is a classic. Yeah, it's all time great. And uh, Scream 4, I was pleasantly surprised with. I watched two and most of three leading up to it. The whole franchise is just so smart and self-reflexive and meta and grows with the times. It's one of the greatest horror franchises of all time, not even close to uh, an overstatement to say that. It's almost unrivaled. I mean, there's some great horror franchises out there, Mm. but it really has a nice continuity. Each film is meta in a different way. And the openings, let's say, of Scream 2 at the Rialto Theater where they're watching Stab 2 and then it turns Mm -hmm. into Stab Fest is just brilliant and plays with racial tensions that are very prescient and and has some commentary about the lack of racial representation in cinema that feels so topical today. Uh, Then you have Scream 3, which is also a send-up of how Hollywood served as a subterfuge for men to basically 
take advantage of women, use their power and wield their power to womanize, which is insane because it was also produced and funded by the one and only Harvey Weinstein. So the <laughs> irony there is unreal. He's and like, then, this to me. Let's, let's get behind this one. <laughs> exactly. Right. Throw uh, money at it. Or maybe that's like kind of his ruse, right? Like if I portray this and show self-awareness, I'll be invulnerable. Uh, right. The kind of twisted psychology there. And then four is a super bitter take on the state of horror in like 2011. So it's just a send up, an angry lampooning of where horror had gone to since the early, early 2000s, uh, when Scream 3 came out. I think that came out in 2001. And then we have a 10-year gap, and then Scream 4 comes out. It starts with the, one of the most echo chamber, funhouse, nesting doll openings of like multiple, what you think are prologues, and they, they turn out to be films within films within films. It's pretty trippy stuff and tons of fun. It feels dated the way it goes after social media because social media rapidly progresses and, and modernizes so that even 10 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's really savvy satire about like influencer culture just feels outmoded. Uh, that said, if you put on the like nostalgic goggles and even take yourself back 10 years and realize it was a little different landscape, then it, it's, it's really good. So how about Shine? Have, did you ever see Shine? I remember the poster so well, but I never actually watched Shine. No, I don't think I've ever seen that one. Yeah. That's the one that kind of like, looks like powder, but with something else in it, right? That's, that's all, all I remember. It's kind of like that movie powder, but Shine did something else that wasn't what powder could do, I'm guessing. Dude, I love that you said that. That is the best association and the exact same to me. Shine and powder are to me the same movies in my mind. Two movies where the poster sticks out forever. Mm -hmm. It's seared in my memory. And I've not yeah. seen either of those films, but I, Shine is about a pianist who has like a mental breakdown. And I, I know it's kind of this artistic, genius savant who kind of goes with psychological problems whereas powder is that skin condition yeah i believe and something to do with lightning i believe or something. Right. that's exactly what the, that's what the poster said without saying it that's what the poster told me this movie was about which is part of why we didn't go see it yeah and also opening the same weekend as prefontaine is hamlet uh, kenneth Branagh's hamlet I don't believe I've seen this one in full. I had a Shakespeare class with Covell, who's going to be on here sooner or later. We're, we're bugging our old professor Covell to come on. But he would show us clips of every single Shakespeare movie, which was really fun. He would like edit them and put them into montages so you could really see the discrepancies of the different representations over the, over the years. But when it comes to Hamlet, I like the Ethan Hawke version almost only. I'm, I'm very much a pro-modernizing of Shakespeare. Anything that like updates Shakespeare like the Romeo and Juliet version, you know, the Leo version can do no wrong. But the uh, old school ones, uh, I'm just not a uh, huge fan of. I see, I have an opposite take. I'm a terrible English student. I have an English degree, but I have to admit, I've seen a lot of Hamlet stuff or a lot of Shakespeare stuff in general. And I think I've fallen asleep through like a lot of it in school. So like, I've seen the Othello with like Lawrence Fishburne, I'm pretty sure, but I, I couldn't tell you much about it. Like you mentioned Ethan Hawke. I'm pretty sure I've seen the Ethan Hawke one too. I'm pretty sure I've fallen asleep in as, a, as an English student. I'm the worst English student. Like Shakespeare does not connect with me very well. Like I've read a lot of it. And so therefore, you know, I've been a lot of Shakespeare classes is always required at just about every damn school I've been at. But so I've seen a lot of these things, like you said, in various capacities. And so like, yeah, my, my connection to a lot of these are like you said, when you, when you mentioned Ethan Hug, I'm like, oh, I think I've seen that either through clips or uh, it's been one I just knocked out on when it was on when we were covering, you know, whichever Merchant of Venice, whatever one it is. But my point being, I jumble Shakespeare together cinematically, I think, with the exception of the Romeo and uh, Juliet one just because of the soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack and it's really smart. It just updated it for the times. 
And to continue on, we have the Relic, classic horror movie I've never seen. Have you seen the Relic? No, no. Yeah, I, I have not seen the Relic either. Uh, I guess it's about a homicide detective and an anthropologist who tried to destroy a South American lizard-like god. Uh, so I guess Godzilla-like, um, mm-hmm. who's on a rampage eating people in a Chicago museum. So it's kind of the precursor to Night at the Museum <laughs> too, in a way. Uh, That's what's up. <laughs> that is what's up. It's, it, sounds, it sounds quite intriguing, but I've never, ever heard of it. Similarly, there's a film called Fierce Creatures I've never heard of, but it also doesn't take place in a museum, but it takes place in a zoo. And it's about zookeepers who are struggling to deal with the policies of a changing director. But the cast of that one's epic. We have Jamie Lee Curtis, Kevin Kline, uh, Michael Palin. It's it's a pretty good uh, 90s cast. So I have no idea about either of those films. Those are on my watch list now. So all the way down to 24. Can you tell us like how much Prefontaine made? All right. So Prefontaine, as you said, it came all the way down at 24, meaning the Relic dominated it, <laughs> the one we didn't see. Opening weekend, it grossed $311,253, averaging about 1500 at theater. So again, very minimal returns. And there's actually a Walt Disney Studios motion picture, which I didn't know until reading this right now, uh, which I found interesting. This is another one we get some F-bombs, right? I don't know if there's an F-bomb. Was there an F-bomb in there? I could be wrong. I have to go back. It's Arlie Emery in there, though. I feel like there has to be some F-bombs, right? Yeah, you're probably right. Oh, he probably at least says some curse words when he has that scene with the dynamite oh yeah yeah i feel like i can't have arlie ember there and not get at least like a shit or you know fuck out of him at least once like you gotta use that absolutely and i had no idea until you mentioned this that it was a walt disney studios motion pictures film that is bizarre yeah it doesn't feel like it as we'll get into when we break this thing down does not feel like any of the walt disney sports movies we covered including uh was it mystery alaska i think was one that was produced by walt disney we found which was again itself like kind of like an enigma compared to the other ones we've already discussed. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's, it's at the, they're literally coming in at 24. It's very much at the bottom. Obviously it didn't do very well. Did you remember hearing about this movie at this time? Uh, no, I had no idea this was out. This is the first time I've ever heard of it. Actually it was a few months ago when Juan, who was uh-huh. on our bonus episode, told me about it, to be honest. And then I was Googling like summer Olympic sports movies and it was like fifth or sixth. So it's high up there because there's oh, not okay. many. Yeah. But no, never heard of it. So I did see that we missed a few that were kind of classics this weekend. Another Walt Disney Studios motion picture film, Metro with Eddie Murphy, where he's like a hostage negotiator. Um, Eddie, Anything by Eddie Murphy in the 90s is hilarious. Yeah. And Evita with Madonna. I mean, that was an mm-hmm. epic, classic, biopic. I do not know how that holds up. I would be curious to watch that again to see if it holds up at all. Um, but some do, like Amadeus holds up really well, for example. Yeah, Amadeus is awesome. And some don't, but... I would be curious to check that one out. I would be curious, like Selena too. Does that hold up today? That's an interesting one. I haven't seen that one in years. And that's one I'd want to go back. I want to go back and see how much of Jennifer Lopez's work in the nineties actually holds up. Like what's that one with her and uh, George Clooney? Oh yeah. Out of sight. I want to see that one again. I remember that was a pretty good movie for its time. I want to see how that one holds up today. I've not seen it in like 20 years. Well, we could also check out, uh, was it Giggly or Jiggly? I know she had some of the biggest bombs ever. Her one with... Ben Affleck was a huge bomb. Oh, yeah. The one with the, the directed by Kevin Smith, like Jersey Girl, right? That one, yes. Yeah, that I'd one have to watch that. That's one I haven't even seen. I'm a pretty big Kevin Smith fan. <laughs> I haven't seen that. He doesn't even want you to see that one. 
<laughs> he hates that one himself. It sounds like <laughs> it's always funny when directors are like that. I uh, yeah. just did their long piece on Todd Talon's. I think that's why I like Kevin Smith so much, though, is he's so self aware that he's not a good director and just has fun. The fact that he gets to make movies and it just he's, he's I think he's amazed that people keep giving him movies. He thinks it's so you know he's like vocal about that. I just find that so like like just kind of reaffirm me. You know, as a creative person, it's kind of cool. <laughs> No, I agree. That mix of naivety and, and humility uh, mm-hmm. of just being like, I can't believe I'm allowed to do this. Like he almost comes across when you hear him in interviews as if he's pulling a heist every single time. Uh, and he's just yeah. giddy about it. <laughs> like I gotta say, cause like we're talking about Kevin Smith and recently he's getting a lot of shit for the uh, masters of the universe thing that he did. And I just finished it. I thought that shit was dope. That thing was awesome. Like he, it was such a cool take on He-Man. And not just a rehash of, again, He-Man's like a stupid cartoon from the 80s that was made to sell you toys. Like, I used to buy these toys. I love these toys. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, he gave it such life. And, like, the voice actors he got to be in this, like, Lena Headley, who's just, like, Cersei on Game of Thrones. Sarah Michelle Gellar, who's, you know, everyone knows from Buffy, you know, playing, like, such good voice casting in this. And, again, the stories themselves, I thought, were were worthwhile. It's kind of him, like, flexing, like, like I said, he got the toy chest to play with. And, like, he did a bunch of interesting stuff with the toys that other people wouldn't do. And I think that's what made everyone mad was how dare you do what I wouldn't do kind of thing again. I would suggest if you haven't seen that, give it a shot. Even if you're not a fan of the old cartoon, if you know who He-Man is, it's, we're checking out because it's just a fresh take on it, uh, which I, I can't praise enough because we have so many of these like IPs that we have to you know rewatch over and over with the same take. And it's nice to get an actual fresh take on it. I've never seen that. I'm going to definitely check that out now. I'm going to put it on my list. I definitely love Tusk. That's one of my favorite cult films. It was inspired by a podcast episode he did. Him and his co-host just found this really strange editorial ad in like some small newspaper about someone willing to pay people to come dress up as a walrus or in a walrus suit. And they just kind of riffed on it on their podcast about like kind of a, a creepy fetishes to who gets like young travelers to come into his mansion and then drug them and basically sews a walrus suit into their body. And it's twisted and hilarious. Oh, it's so, so good. Like crazy body humor stuff or body yeah. humor, I guess. Yeah. And what's also amazing is he does all these really literary references, like great literary references to uh-huh. it's like Alexander Pope and Coolidge and you know, all these like 17th, 18th century poets and really, really brilliant references and allusions. So he's working with very, very highbrow and very, very lowbrow. It just blends perfectly. At the same time, Yoko Hoosiers, which was kind of, I, I would say almost just like a gift to his daughter. daughter. Yeah. yeah. is awful. It's just straight up one of the worst films. But there's something even about those that if you can just get on the right mindset, at least it comes off as off the cuff. There's something free about his movies that feel very independent, just like they're having fun on set, even though like no jokes work and the narrative is a total slapdash mess. There's still something that comes off very earnest and authentic about it. It just comes from a genuine place. So he's able to even transcend to a degree uh, his worst. He can be hit or miss, but often he's hit. I think we definitely captured that time (laughs) period of Prefontaine because both of us did not even know that this came out in 97. So let's get into Prefontaine. Prefontaine's pretty wild in its own right with Jared Leto coming off of Requiem for a Dream a few years before Fight Club. He's the center of this. He definitely is very similar in ways and different in ways than Billy Crudup. How did you like or dislike his portrayal of Prefontaine? They both have this look of Prefontaine. From what we see of the footage, particularly in this one, this one uses a lot of this old footage of what I assume is actual Prefontaine. Just to give you that comparison, like he suits the body type for sure. I feel like he has this compelling 
fire to him. Like it's more compelling motivation that he's able to portray beyond the lines he's given. There's a lot of poignant lines that uh, Leto gets and like he delivers them pretty well for the most part. But there's this like conviction that Crudup has that I think Leto lacks in his portrayal of Prefontaine. It's worth noting at the beginning of this conversation because like, like we mentioned, we already covered Without Limits based on the same character. There's this dueling narrative of, you know, what is Prefontaine? It's kind of one of the questions I think I, I want this conversation to just not answer, but in the background is like, what are we supposed to take away from Prefontaine from these stories? And like, I think they both kind of introduce us similarly, this idea of he's intense, he's highly motivated. Again, that word competitive, but he's confrontational with this competitiveness. But I like the delivery of Without Limits much more clever. There's more discreteness going on. The way he he approaches his running, right? The way he approaches his battles within the team. And that's another thing I want to point out with this one is the team seems to be an interesting focus in this one that isn't and without, without limits, right? Which I think is a benefit of this one. I think it's one of the things I like more about this film is that we're introduced to the, to the other members of this Oregon track team. And those are the stories I like. And we'll get into that a little later. I'll save that for later. But that's one of the things I like about this one is even though we got these interesting about things about Prefontaine, he's an intense dude. Jared Leto kind of shows that to me. I think Kurt gives us a more intense version of it that really sits, situates us into Without Limits where it's just more compelling to be a viewer, honestly. I was much more into Crudup's running, the way he was just presented. Again, the conflict with the team it just really helps you get to, to the, the you know combustion you need to get the narrative going. Whereas with, I feel like with Jared Leto in the beginning of Prefontaine, just the way it's introduced, and I'll just give you a quick rundown, like it sounds very 80s-ish, right? We get this cool the guitar riff that's like super reverby, and then like the, the rhythm guitar is all like chorused out, which is just straight 80s, right? It just rings of 80s, but we just said it's 1997, and we're watching a race that takes place in the 60s. So it's this weird dating thing where you know, it feels like you're watching something 80s, which could be cool, I guess, if you're really into 80s films, I guess that could be a, a plus. But for me, though, it becomes this kind of device that's kind of holding your hand, which I don't like. With, with uh, Without Limits, it's not holding your hand. It's throwing things at you. It's making you distribute the narrative yourself. This one is really holding your hand with he's a fast guy. He runs. It has this whole thing with the mother and stuff that's way different than the other story, which we get into. I just felt like this one just a little more didactic. And again, it has a little bit more of that just pulling the string, but just leading you. Whereas Prevontaine is going to let the story kind of unfold. So that's my quick breakdown. I would say just to answer your question, I like Credits better. It's a tough one. I think Leto is such an intriguing method actor. And I feel like his eyes are so powerful throughout this and throughout uh-huh. his career that he kind of does a decent job with his eyes. Whereas Crudup is a little more understated, but he's held up by way better material as well. I think that Without Limits is just a, such a better script and mm-hmm. a better supporting cast for the most part that it just helps him along. So I feel like Jared Leto gets the shitty end of the stick again and again with his Joker. He basically got edited out of the movie, right? And Uh he didn't do an awful job, but it's like the worst Joker of all time. It just feels inconsequential. He puts so much into his roles and gets so little out of it. It's The discrepancy there feels absurd to me. It's like you hear about the mythos of these behind the scenes (laughs) antics. And then you see yeah. the thing and it's just so underwhelming. It's ridiculous. I'm glad you pointed out though, because there's there's these scenes here where like, I just feel like you said, I feel like he's he's really pushing it and you feel he's pushing it and that takes it away from me as, a, as an audience. I, I feel like he's acting, right? And it's something you never want to say when you're watching someone perform, but there's these moments there, like, especially since we said we're coming off of Without Limits. It is limited material, like you point out. The writing in this compared to Without Limits, Without Limits is much better written material for sure. The speeches you get about what the Olympics mean, what happens after the Israeli athletes are killed are, are more about, you know, the broader spectrum of humanity, the ethos of running and, you know, the privilege of running 
that's completely absent in this one, right? This is, is really all about how do you get Prefontaine to react to these historical things around him, which the other movie doesn't do. It presents, presents a realistic, I'll say, take of Prefontaine situated in history. I think Without Limits it shows us these historical moments and the stuff around that without you know focusing just on Prefontaine, right? Like I said, we get so much great stuff about with the coach and uh, Without Limits. Whereas this one, right? We have there's really just the scene with the Israeli like hostage situation. Like it's, it's conveyed to us from a point of view of just Prefontaine watching it happen. It takes these weird liberties of like a voyeurism, I guess. It's very jumbled. Again, the way it all gets is just to create the psychological tension of Prefontaine. And it really just creates this weird excuse that wasn't in the last one. The last one is, and we even get a speech with Ed O'Neill really hammering that in, right? It's, it's like I say, it's the characters that come in here, they're good actors. Like we have Ed O'Neill, um, we have Arlie Emery, who Arlie Emery's good in this. But even the words he gets to deliver, right? It's so anecdotal and just so confined. And, you know, here he comes, you know what he's going to do. He's going to serve as a coach he doesn't want to be, like he says in the beginning. So it becomes even a little bit more of a cliche than without limits. Without limits, like we said, a lot of it has cliches, but it's doing a lot to defy those cliches too. Uh, I think this one just kind of embraced the cliches a bit too much. Yeah, and I think that that setup for Munich that you jumped in there with the voyeurism is very strange. He feels planted. It doesn't feel natural. I cannot imagine them hanging out on their balconies right across the way from these armed gunmen and being <laughs> like in the clear open view. But I don't know the actual, you know, historical facts around that. So I have to give it its poetic license or potential hypothetical credit as being true, but I doubt it. Mm. At the same time, it does have an interesting possibility there of this duality of madmen because like prefontaine is a little mad himself we don't know these armed gunmen though so they're just kind of yeah. ciphers but there's this moment where he like stares into the eyes of one of the gunmen wearing the mask and it is kind of eerie it, it could have uh, been really interesting if it wasn't so preposterous to me especially because like, like when you point out and without limits like what we take away from prefontaine's madness is like his meticulousness to his craft and that's what his madness is it's not that he's going to go dummy a fucking terrorist. That's what we're trying to get from like Leto's stare down, right? It's this idea, even with the physical confrontation in the bar and stuff like that, there's this element of pushing the persona on the track field beyond the track field and into like these, you know, elements of that really build up just him as a hero, which is weird, right? Right? Because again, we're looking at he's, he's a tragic hero, no matter how you tell his story. But when the, in the other story, it's not about Prefontaine standing up to terrorism or, you know, confronting the enemy in the eye or nothing like that, right? It's really about, you know, this the disruption of this moment that's meant to be peaceful. That's such a poignant topic, right? It's all, it really hammers down you know, what the Olympics are about, as we discussed in that podcast. This it just overlooks everything with the exception of the team. It overlooks, you know, the glory of the Olympics, all that stuff. It's really, again, just the focus of his parents coming to see him at the at the center, right? We didn't see that in, without limits, right? Has all this stuff, again, of really just focusing him as, like, vulnerable. And that's really what it's all supposed to do there, because it's all about his psychological vulnerability. Like I said, it's really just building into, like, why he loses Munich, at least in the context of this narrative. And to me, it's just, like, again, it's too self-serving. It's a little bit too much of this weird myth building, which, again, like, with our overarching question, like, what is the story of Prefontaine. The other story is that Prefontaine, that Without Limits does a great job of this, how Without Limits shows us what running really is. Like we said in that one, we both thought running just run as fast as you can and you go. This movie basically kind of does that and doesn't do that, right? It doesn't explain the, like the details of how he needs to run, how he needs to place, why he needs to run these ways. Like Without Limits really explain that well, right? It gives you a reason of understanding why he lost Munich. It's not an excuse. There's a reason he, he ran everything he could. He did the right things. He changed his strategy. He actually changed his ethos and like he still loses. There's, that's the point of that thing, right? This, you completely lose that point. 
make this weird meta narrative about he he's still a great runner and all this and you overshadow the Finland dude just whooped him and the other movie without limits just really bashes that in like the idea that he is fallible he is mad he has lost and this is just a weird whitewashing of all his failures even in death this movie really makes his death you know raised to a to a spectacle that without limits just completely avoids because without limits is not about necessarily about glorification um it's really about you know exploring what made this guy a unique athlete a transcendent athlete for sure um, he is a transcendent athlete but without limits is really about what makes him that this is this thing about telling you he is that and i found that in many ways we use that word that we both don't like that much problematic at times because if you're comparing it to the other one the other one is like so much better for being like i said more discreet hiding its cards a little bit and then just exposing him when it really needs to. And this one, like I said, it doesn't expose anything, just pulling you along. Yeah, I like that you really echoed kind of my sentiments too. And it's interesting because uh, the bonus episode with the track and field athlete with Juan, he had an interesting perspective, which I think you'll be interested in hearing too, because I'm on your side. I feel like Without Limits is uh, such a better depiction of running. Whereas I think you're also getting at this fact that this film doesn't hand you anything. So if for someone who doesn't get running, you're kind of feel a little lost or just there's no narrative to clutch to. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting from his perspective is that there was a lot of subtleties in this that put you in the psychology of a runner that you had to already be a runner to understand. Uh, uh, just like this little conversations about, you know, in Munich, when they say that the other competitors are not worried about the tragedy you can't worry about it. Or when they're talking about the miler versus the three miler, like the little mm. vernacular and the, the context and the associations of those different races, all these little moments, apparently, because mm. I'm not a competitive runner, never had been, but apparently from Juan's perspective, it's more relatable. Whereas Without Limits works so well for both of us. And I think it's because it's made more for like the layman. And it yeah. does do a great job of doing the same thing that the Queen's Gambit does. It, it lays out the basic tactics and strategies of racing. And that's Mm. what this movie overlooks or kind of quickly elides or skims over. And you feel a little bit just left cold. Uh, That's a great breakdown, like you said, because I felt the same way. And that would make sense if you're a runner, you'd be able to enjoy it more just like like us with some of these hockey movies that have less action, less explanation. Completely makes sense. And I agree with you because I felt like races are supposed to be our climactic moments. And I feel like they don't deliver in this one other than like the bloody foot one, which was just from the outside experience of watching another movie. Like you're comparing it to the other one. They're both pretty cool. Those bloody foot moments are both, those are the ones that have the most appeal, gruesomeness, right? They have that, they have that element to it that the only really physical element you get from running, right? Um, other than exhaustion, right? And that was the other thing that I felt like Prefontaine really showed that exhaustion factor, like really hits you. I mean, not Prefontaine, excuse me, without limits whereas this one the races just seem to wrap up even when he loses right particularly like the last race um the one where they have the finish athletes show up in oregon doesn't get to race the guy he wants but he still wins and it's not even delivered in at least for me like like you said because i'm not a runner there's no compelling tension at least enough to highlight you know the back and forth pull on the last lap he, he ends up like smoking him it looks like you know basically goes into this resolution of his it's going to lead to his death so i felt like with this one it's hard to like have those big hurrah moments that i think are necessary in sports movies and I think Prefontaine, at least for me, doesn't deliver on that. I think it's going for it with the funeral scene and the way they chant his name. But again, given the context of what we've seen with these other ones, we'll get into that a little bit more with the way he's portrayed in uh, Without Limits on campus. His campus persona is much different than that one. Yeah, I feel like it just doesn't deliver the way it's supposed to send you off. It's supposed to send you off teary-eyed, at least for me. It just I don't know, it didn't give me enough of it, the spectacle of sport and then enough to really resolve with his death. Yeah, I think that the funeral scene in both films just 
doesn't quite hit you as it should. Also, I think it was interesting that both films purposely perhaps skip over the fact that he had a blood alcohol concentration of 0.16. So he was actually drinking and driving, which makes sense because he was coming from a party. But I just think it's a strange thing to omit because it is such a important thing. Yeah, like that's a good thing to point out because like even this one was like, so it's a hit and run. And like the way, like you said, so like it's someone else's fault. And even that one is like, how do you hit him? Like, is it because it's speeding? Is it because the turn the other one it made it look like it was like a clipping thing? They're both not ambiguous. They're both trying to say someone else killed him. I mean, like that's a valid point. Like you said, I know he had a 1.6 one because the other one, the other one did make it look more like he was drunk driving um, and without limits for sure. This one yeah. it seemed like he was just going for a joyride. It does, right? And it feels like he's preparing for the race and without limits and he's like completely sober uh, mm. to, to amp up the tragedy. But I think it almost works equally well if he is drunk because he is kind of so headstrong that he would be someone to me who would kind of drink and drive, to be honest. Huh. So I feel like it, it it's weird because neither of these films are totally idol worship in the way that they don't necessarily preoccupied with depicting him in a savory way throughout Uh, you know he's he's definitely a divisive character in both movies so i just don't understand why that was left out i do appreciate prefontaine's funeral moment with the hearse going around the track i Mm -hmm. don't know if that actually happened but I can't believe that was left out and without limits. I think that's a very powerful symbolic gesture that really uh, it works well. I also think that the race in Oregon again, where Viren doesn't show up to compete against him, his Finnish rival, is way anticlimactic, almost should have been omitted from the screenplay. It's odd to even put that in there. And I think without limits was smart to leave that out because truly his main race, the race that defines his career is that Munich race. And so that should be the last race in the film, just from a just from a narrative standpoint. I get that it's not necessarily accurate, but they're not showing every race of his career anyway. So, you know, it's not chronicling his life step by step. So they have creative license to do that. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the Munich race, I oscillate a lot between which one I like more. I think that in terms of dramatic beats, Without Limits is unrivaled. But I think that my first reading of Prefontaine worked well with my conception of who he was in a slightly more synchronistic way. I think that the idea of him sprinting too early and then running out of gas was more favorable than just being boxed in. As I meditate on it more and more, ruminate upon it, I kind of like the boxed in and the dissonance of that because it goes against everything he stands for. But in portraying it that way, I think Without Limits missed a really key opportunity. And that is to show why he suddenly allows himself to be boxed in, not only in the race, not only in the precursors that led to him being boxed in, but psychologically, because as you start a race, you can easily become a front runner from what we've gathered, right? No one's sprinting off the get-go. So what led him to allow himself to be, to be boxed in? Because we get the, the tension between him and Bowerman in Without Limits, Donald Sutherland, in which Bowerman constantly wants him to pace himself for the first 75% of the race. But he never follows along until Munich. And so what happened? Where was that shift? In Prefontaine, we kind of get a better idea of what is going on psychologically before the race. So we see that he is affected directly by the assassination of the 11 Israelis, and it's kind of haunting him psychologically. We also see that he is intimidated 
by Viren by watching him in his 10K race on television. And you could see the intimidation and trepidation in his eyes in that moment. Uh, so you get a little bit more of the backstory in Prefontaine around the Munich race. In that sense, I think it's a little more cohesive with his psychological development and why he loses the race. And they also note that he only gets boxed in for a short time in Prefontaine. He ends up getting in first a few times and he pushes it three times, three sprints to try to take the lead, right? These these movements, but each one of them fails because from what I gather is Viren is just a better athlete. There's like no way he was going to win the race. He tried everything he could. He sprint. I think with 600 meters left, Arlie Ermi says while he's watching the race in Munich, he's like, the son of a bitch is, is, is sprinting with this, with this much time left. He, he's going for the win, right? Like, which is kind of exciting. I actually like that little meta commentary that he's giving us the audience because I wouldn't have understood the dynamics there. So I appreciated all that. I actually like that. But at the same time, I think that without limits works because the whole boxing is such a friction throughout his career that for that being the reason he loses, it makes it more monumental or poignant or tragic or just frustrating uh, in a good way because being frustrated is also good for drama as a viewer. You're like, why on earth would this person do this there, right? You're pissed off. You don't necessarily feel good, but it's, it's still intriguing. So I don't know, like I'm just going all over and vacillating back and forth. I do think both have interesting takes, but it's so weird how they're disparate from each other, the, the two mm-hmm. Munich takes. What do you think about the Munich races in terms of not just the depiction? Because I, I agree, Without Limits has a way better cinematic approach, like the music, uh, just the buildup of the tension, the crescendoing of yeah. the drama is completely superior to Prefontaine. That aside, what about just the way it fits and belongs in the narrative for you on those two races? Well, like I said, I like, one thing I like about Without Limits, it does, again, with just a few quick lines in one scene, we get that rousing speech about what it is to represent your country and what is the purpose of the Olympics is to avoid war. Right. And that becomes a motivating factor. Also, what the reason he is there, but also the reason he should be listening to his coach. Right. It could be, at least in my view, an interpretation of that. Right. It's the rousing coaching speech. It is a sports cliche. But again, it's an interpretive sports cliche. Right. It relies on us taking the cues and factors of, of what's going on. Right. The rousingness of the moment. That's one of the things I like about Without Limits. There's such grandeur to it, but its grandeur is delivered with such subtlety. Right. He gives a speech and then it's portrayed through this race where he does the best. Like you said, the best he can. And he still fails. And Without Limits really accepts that, right? It really hammers in the point that, yes, you did everything you could, and this guy is just better than you, without saying that. Whereas this one, like you, you said, we ha- we can decipher that, but by giving us the Finland race and having him really say the guy pulled out, right, is this insinuation that the guy is scared of him. It's absurd, right? This dude just, like like you just explained, this dude ran like a 10,000-mile run or whatever, got gold, and then he ran this crazy shit and got, that's a beast, right? That's a fucking athlete right there. It's that is the finished fucking Prefontaine. He probably has a bunch of cool ass movies like this too about him and his cool ass story, right? Again, because like again, when we talk about the story of what is Prefontaine, particularly in the context now of running, Prefontaine's story is putting a spotlight on student athletes, pretty much, right? Or amateur athletes. That seems to be the consensus takeaway from both these. And even those two stories are very kind of like divergent paths on how they come to that consensus of how, how he, he serves in this role as ambassador of sport. Like just like the race, right? They come at this same thing from two completely separate angles. He's outspoken. We get that for sure. But how he's outspoken, like this one shows him as more of an organizer, right? This one, he basically uh, organizes petitions. Uh, it doesn't show him doing all this stuff, but he, he understands the guidelines. He basically creates this event, promotes an event without promoting it, we'll say, um, for just like a discussion. Whereas the other one, right, it's him giving the FU to the Olympic Committee 
verbally, right, through all that, but not much happens of that, right? We see him turn down the money, all that stuff. Again, that same offer of $200,000 comes back. But in this one, at least in, um, in Prefontaine, right, we see a little bit more concrete action, I guess, of him being this voice of the amateur athletes, which makes more sense in terms of when we talk about what is the lasting legacy? Why do we care about a Prefontaine movie, you know, 20 years later? I think that's the reason why. At least for me, as I take these away, I think that's if you're if you're to remake a Prefontaine story, I don't think we care about the running as much. I think the Prefontaine story to, we want to hear now today is Prefontaine as is you know the activism of him essentially. And I think in today's audience, that'd probably be the story we want to hear. Yeah, it's interesting. They're both kind of compelling narratives. One is more in the political realm, and it fits in today's stories about how college athletes are finally starting to get sponsored for the first year ever in 2021. So it makes it more relevant and germane. At the same time, it's pretty timeless. The narratives of like a narcissistic and resolute athlete who just kind of shuns everything and everyone to a degree in the pursuit of greatness. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's always a magnetic storyline and leads to magnetic performances. So I think both films are on the right track to balance the two. I just don't think either one quite gets perfect balance. Um, one of my takeaways, I do think that there is a Prefontaine movie still out there that is truly great. I would definitely pay for a movie ticket if there was a new one and, and cross my fingers that it checked off all the, all the boxes for me. I also agree about Munich with you in that Donald Sutherland nicely links it to like the grander historical context and allows us to move quickly into the race. He cleans up the narrative, right? It's just, he takes that grandeur of the coach saying like, we're competing to, in a strange way, give an antidote to war. This is the alternative. I also appreciate the messiness, though, of Prefontaine and Ed O'Neill's interaction with him, which is quite ugly. Ed O'Neill comes across as almost repulsive in a, in a very fascinating way. I loved it, where mm -hmm. he is not compassionate for either the Israelis or Prefontaine's state of mind. All he's concerned about is Prefontaine getting in the right mindset to run, which I also appreciate too, because that's a realistic depiction of just kind of a gritty individual who understands the stakes and is aware that Prefontaine has trained his whole life for this event and has awful as the tragic scenarios around Munich are, he would be myopic to allow himself to forfeit or capitulate both emotionally and psychologically to the feelings that were stirred up by the hostage situation and the eventual deaths of the Israeli athletes, which he's definitely going through turmoil. You see scenes with Leto dealing with it and grappling with it and uncertain of whether he's going to compete in this one, which they don't really show as much in Without Limits. And I think that you know, given the context of 2020, where we had all the protests and some athletes still wanted to play and some didn't, you see this interesting dynamic of like peer pressure to make a statement politically versus peer pressure to just compete because that's your profession and that's your, your calling, let's say. And you're seeing the pressure of the coach who has his own motivations that aren't necessarily yours. And Ed O'Neill is underused in this movie. Uh, you know, it's nowhere compared to uh, Little Giants, but <laughs> he is definitely way better than the assistant coach in Without Limits. I think he's a way more uh, nuanced portrayal of Bill Dellinger, the assistant coach to Bowerman, than Without Limits. So uh, what did you think about that dynamic between Ed O'Neill and him before the Olympics? And also... If you'd like to elaborate on it, uh, what did you think about Ed O'Neill in this movie compared to the assistant coach in Without Limits? And if you want to go into it, 
how would you compare Donald Sutherland and Arlie Ermey as Bill Bowerman? Because I'm curious, you, you talked about last episode, uh, your excitement for Arlie Ermey because of his history as like a drill sergeant, as like a real army guy mm. from, I believe it was Full Metal Jacket. So I'm just curious to hear your takes on, on how you uh, compare the actors and the, the roles in these films. Yeah, well, well, I'll start with Ed O'Neill because I'm actually watching uh, Married with Children and Modern Family. Or the two shows have been in the background a lot lately, so I'm a huge Ed O'Neill fan. So I was stoked to see him in this one, and I agree that his portrayal in this one is just so much more rounded. And I liked his introduction as the ambassador, right, of Bowerman. That's mentioned in Without Limits, right? The fact that he felt slighted that uh, Bowerman didn't show up in person to go get him. But I like the delivery of how he's how he's like slick with the parents. He's working class. He tries to be like, you know, present himself as working class, but he's also complimentary. The father he calls him like an architect, but his dad says he's a construction worker. He's like, really? Architects are overrated. Like, I think it's a perfect casting, right? Because particularly given the time, he's like the everyday, this, he was the American dad at this time, right? So I think it's a, it's a great role for him to just give us that early introduction to the family, which is one thing I thought was interesting because you don't get anything about that in Without Limits. In fact, I think if, as I recall, Without Limits, the mother wasn't super supportive, as I recall. Right. And this one, she seems very supportive, like on board, like makes a 180. Uh, she's really involved in the recruiting process. It's a very you know, wholesome, actually kind of like Disney-esque take of like the family structure um, and, and the excitement of getting recruited. And I, I like the way it gives us a chance to see, at least in that regard for this movie, how confrontational the chip on Larry Prefontaine's shoulder, how he's always got this chip on his shoulder because even though he's getting recruited by everyone, the one he wants didn't come see him, right? So I like the way, I think Ed O'Neill's perfect for delivering it again, because he's a good, like, just the solver of the situation. He's friendly. The way we're presented with the note or the letter in the newspaper is an extra layer that I appreciate that was absent from Without Limits. Whereas when we get to the coaches, though, that's the one's interesting. I do like Arlie Emery or for sure, but this wasn't the role for him. He's not a coach. You're like, you know, he's more of a drill sergeant. He's more of a grind. He's more of a boss, right? He's he's the boss you don't like, right? And this one, he's he's pretty likable. And that kind of works against him in sometimes. Because I think one of the nice things about Donald Sutherland's portrayal is that grand wisdom, right? The idea that he sees beyond what's on the field or whatever, and he knows the potential and he knows the tool that needs to do it. He's just giving you the tools. He's such a good, again, that in the context of the hero's journey, he's such a good mentor. And he embodies that so well. And like we've already said like several times in this podcast, the speeches he delivers and without limits are probably, at least for me, like some of the highlights of that movie. Um, they stick with you. Whereas with this one, Arlie Emery doesn't have too many good quotes other than like the funny moments where he blows up like the mailbox where the guy keeps knocking it over, right? And again, that, that portrays him as intimidating and psychotic. Whereas Borman was like, you know, he's clever. He's making the shoes. This one, he's like stealing his wife's like waffle machine, like doesn't want her to see it. Like, you know, he's it doesn't really explain it as well. The qualities of what's going to go on to be the legacy of Nike. And I got to say the delivery, because we're talking about delivery of Nike, both these deliver the origin of Nike differently, right? I like that Arlie Emery kind of mentions in his version that he has like a, an old running runner who wasn't you know top of the class or whatever but still worked with him came up with the idea of the swoosh or whatever again another little layer that was absent of the without limits one but i think again the without limits has this grand great like grandeur of like presenting the shoe as like the lightsaber <laughs> it's like you know it made it work even better like you know without like you know, being so heavy-handed whereas this one you know he pulls off the swoosh which is funny I like the way he says that's, i think that's just like wind resistance or whatever it has that cool like i guess ironic moment of him being you know an iconoclast even then he wouldn't be behind Nike, I guess. It's, it's an interesting take, but I do think, I think I like Sutherland better than uh, Emery in the end. You spelled it out for me really well. You put it into explicit terms. I think I like Sutherland more because he exudes an intelligence and a wisdom that 
Arlie Ermey just misses. I think that he comes off a little bit too much as a nutcase. He seems like he has kind of a screw loose and he just doesn't have that necessary sage-like element that Sutherland has and the clever coolness, the suaveness, where I feel like what was so fascinating about Without Limits is you had two masterminds in a way. Um, You Mm -hmm. had two very astute, shrewd, sharp-witted individuals or wanting the same thing, but wanting it in different ways. And I just Mm -hmm. don't feel like that works very well here. And so like why I fixated so much on Ed O'Neill's character, the assistant coach, is because I feel like the scene with him and Leto before the Munich race is probably the best moment in Prefontaine when it comes to Mm -hmm. a coaching runner standpoint of two completely different perspectives on a situation that has to be teased out and, and creates really interesting commentaries about sports about how to deal with grief, how to kind of brush tragic elements of life aside when it comes to competing in something that is at the end of the day frivolous. It's not, and it is, right? Like I don't want to completely degrade sports, but you know, at the end of the day, it's a game. It it becomes overshadowed and eclipsed very easily when something major happens in the real world. So uh, jump in there because like that's one of the best things about i think prefontaine like i said was it mac wilkins story right he's a discus thrower and just like you say his story is that he's always overshadowed by um the success of prefontaine and i like the irony is that mac is just like prefontaine right we have that great moment where he talks about like i do the same things you do i'm just not a jerk <laughs> yeah he was a great part where he says you were a jerk but like basically he says i do like you like i i hate the holidays i hate anything that gets in the way of my routine and like prefontaine makes a point where like you know well that's worked for you and it hasn't worked for me and then there's that irony that even though it has worked for mac he's the one getting gold medals and setting records and you know representing this you know the country well and whatnot but even you know when he gets his final moment when he wins i don't know if it's true or not but like i can actually look it up like you know he finally sets his record beats his finished rival he does what prefontaine wanted to do right and prefontaine dies and takes his you know front page story at first i didn't like the concept of using the interview as a narrative device i hate i like some of these movies look dated with with the old makeup and stuff like that like we saw that with um chariots of fire too right so when you see that like i was like i was kind of put off like oh we're gonna get some stories or whatever but that was a story that delivered right where he gets his moment of him tearing up and like a rivalry and he's like even the day that asshole died he still he still took the spotlight right that's the movie i want to see is the mac wilkins story i want to know what happened to him like i want to know like his rivalry with prefontaine on that team that to me that's that's a short story i want to hear that's an, an interesting like little thread though that that is really well like put out like you said it only works with the whole them versus finland thing but it's a small part of the story let's be honest like it's it's very small but like it's, the movie goes through a lot of lengths to make that connection uh right we have to have this giant you mentioned this giant match basically you have him go off on a on a final victory which i think is like i agree it's unnecessary other than the fact that it gives us a tie to this mac dude who, who again i guess is my favorite character in this movie yeah i think mac is the only reason why that that organ meets track meet is not a complete miss and the fact that it does get into the aau which is in- mm-hmm. interesting but it it, it it would otherwise feel gratuitous uh, i'd like mac as well i think he's fascinating and he starts off the film calling him a talented little pissant yeah <laughs> and yeah. i first thought that we were going to get a clean like representation of prefontaine as a talented little pissant in, in a montage or some sort of a scene right after that following that but what i almost got from mac by the end is that prefontaine as we said in without limits is a rock star he's the lead singer mac is the disgruntled bassist or drummer <laughs> that's what he he serves to me as he that's is good. That's a good analogy. but he's 
he's intrinsically no different. And I think that he's even deluding himself to think that he's a nicer guy. I, I don't even buy that necessarily. He just doesn't get all the girls and all the hoopla because he's not a track star. He's a disc thrower. No one gives a crap about disc throwers. Yeah. So he is just a pissed, bitter, envious dude. That's what I get from Mac. And I don't like hate him because of it, but I, I think that it's a, it's a funny and very relatable binary between those two characters yeah. that, that I completely understand and relate to myself. So in, in terms of the music you mentioned earlier, like the corny 80s guitar work in the beginning, it kind of gets a little better as it goes on. We have a lot of like the late 60s, early 70s hippie vibes Mm. Uh, and we get the like credence in there with the fortunate son, which is like, like I said, it shows up right when we have the references to Vietnam. Um, like it's good music. I like credence. I like learning skater and stuff like that. But it's all the songs you expect to be licensed for something like this. Yeah, um, I love the classic Who song, but yeah, I don't know. It just feels a little too on the nose. Like they didn't have enough creativity to find that needle drop that we don't quite hear at every single movie but that yeah. still works. And that's what I look for. I look for the song choice that's just a little bit novel, even if it's still a classic. They just went for the easiest picks in this. And I, I feel like that shows a lack of courage on the filmmakers. I want to ask you actually, because yeah. we're talking about like the, the kind of like 60s, 70s motif, but the music and whatnot. But what do you think about like the kind of like use of like stock footage in this? It was interesting. I thought that that there was too many elements going on with the faux documentary, with the archival footage of Prefontaine, with the stock footage of the Vietnam War, and then interspersed with the fictional footage. It just became a little bit haphazard feeling and incongruous and, and just clumsy at the end to me. I didn't love it. I liked the footage of Prefontaine running that they had interspersed because I thought that was just cool to see. I would uh, be very interested to just watch a documentary on Prefontaine. But also like the whole hippie narrative was a little overdone in Prefontaine where he flips off one of the protesters on his run. And when he jumps onto the car with the hippie sign and runs over the roof, that whole depiction was just <laughs> silly. I, what did you feel? Uh, I agree. Well, the stock footage, I thought I agree. It was too much. I liked the stuff with Prefontaine. I felt like it would have been fine because it starts off with that for the credits. I felt like that was enough, but it gives you, like I said, in every race, it has some sort of old footage. With the presentation of him, I like when, and without limits, the way he explores the campus, like the way we get him like running, we see him like hitting on girls, like the way he used to give him, like he, like, he had his method of giving him shoes, right? The elements of him and his like, his romance life and without limits is just, was explored just more fluidly. Um, The way his, his relationships were portrayed and without limits, they made more sense in that one. This one, they kind of come and go. Uh, they don't really serve a whole lot of purpose other than after his death to give us a sympathetic attachment to that funeral. Yeah, I agree. I felt like his first run with him and um, what's the name? Uh, Breckin Meyer's character, Pat, his roommate. I like Breckin Meyer in this as his, as his like kind of like buddy roommate who's not in it a whole lot, but he, he does deliver some nice lines. But yeah, I felt like it was a little too much. It reminded me almost like a like Mighty Ducks esque, like the shenanigans, but out of place in a movie like this where you know it felt a little too animated for what what they're going for. Okay, I have two more questions for you about comparisons between the two films oh, that sure. I that we need to, to cover before perhaps wrapping this up is, first of all, the female characters in the movie, they're very different. Uh, mm -hmm. What did you think about his romantic relationships and his depiction as, you know, a ladies man in both films in different ways? And the other one is the bloody foot race, which is which is a great race. But what do you think about the completely polar opposite backstories? to why he gets stitches in his foot, right? One, he's jumping oh. off a balcony into the pool. And the other one, he's trying to do crazy <laughs> sexual acrobatics in his room. Like, <laughs> which one did you like better 
I feel like the this crazy sexual acrobatics one's funnier and worked better. I think it delivered, but I think realistically, he probably just jumped off a roof and fucked his leg up doing that. I just we've all seen that happen. Anyone's parties versus people are drunk and they start jumping in the pool, it always happens. It's fucking people miss the pool, right? Like, it always happens. Yeah, I 100% think that's what actually happened. But I do think that without limits, one took the right like creative liberties with that again because it works so well with, the, with like depicting them as like Lothario kind of like ladies man. I think all without limits just delivers on just so much better because it has just better female actresses in it. That's the biggest problem with Prefontaine is uh, Laurel Holloman does not deliver any any type of emotion. Like I, I hate to like rip on actresses and actors, but it's a bad performance across the board. There's no emotion, no give or take, especially with someone as intense as Jared Leo just staring at you like he's the fucking Joker the whole damn time. Like I mean, it's really funny like watching this retrospectively. Like it's like he's interrogating her as a Joker. He's just trying to tell her he loves her and shit. So it plays off. Whereas uh, in with without limits, that, that was a, that was a cute little relationship. You get the sense of why she makes him a better man, like why he challenges her. Like again, the, the dynamics of him, particularly the way they emphasize her as like this like pious individual without limits, adds such depth to the, like their relationship and why it's so complex, why it's worth pursuing whereas these ones the relationships are just there because we need relationships um it starts out because he has a girlfriend from his hometown we forget completely about her i thought she just like was there for college and went home then he meets this new girl and they're having a fight I'm like oh i've got he's still i guess i guess she lives in the dorm with him right it's, it's these things that like they're, they're explained but not explained and it, it kind of helps him look better in a weird way most of the love interest and stuff with prefontaine just did not work for me um and a lot of it had to do with delivery and just like structure of it whereas i think like without limits just embrace it they had so much fun with like i said like the way he picks up girls like they make it a, a good character trait right it all amplifies prefontaine to a, a degree where either you like him or don't like him but to the point that you need to it's what you need to make that shift where you where you believe like, to use the words from prefontaine where you believe he's a runner right not just like a joker figure and not joker like the comic book character joker like the jokester yeah i i think that like you brought up the fact that they have these funny tie-ins to like the adidas and the nikes with without limits and his relationship relationship with the groupies and even that is really savvy because it builds on another narrative going on in the film the like nike narrative whereas this uh you just have the uh, girlfriends mainly as talking heads in the faux documentary moments uh, mm -hmm. and a few times just kind of looking like deer in the headlights characters and i'm not going to put it on the actresses themselves i just think they're poorly written and poorly directed given nothing to stand on there's no scaffolding to their character they have to deliver some of the corniest lines, like in the airport where his uh, girlfriend calls him his hero. Just roll a, your that's eyes. That's a cringy line, right? Like, it's such a cringy thing to hear. Like, really? Yeah, it's it's downright creepy, actually. <laughs> it's very patriarchal, or that's not the right word, but it, it just feels male worship in a weird way. It, yeah, it's it like just, too domineering or something like that. Like, it's so icky. But I, I, I definitely think that Without Limits... Uh, it's, which is pretty funny because I don't think that it was needed in the film. I think that the relationship element was the superfluous part of that movie that should have been edited out. But at the same time, it was better than Prefontaine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So to me, I can be presumptuous, I feel, and say that you liked Without Limits more. I uh, can infer that with almost 100% certainty. You'd be correct, sir. So I'm just curious uh, on its own merit for its space in the pantheon of sports movies and 90 sports movies and low budget ones uh could you consider this overrated or an underdog movie and why uh it's kind of this one's a little complicated too because like we said it came in like 24th both of us didn't hear about it so it is in itself like in essence an underdog i'll say it, it's overrated in the sense that it's not what i'm going to come back to put it this way if i was going to watch if i had a, i'm gonna watch a prefontaine movie night i got without limits i got the one called prefontaine i just pick without limits 
I would I would skip Prefontaine. One of the things I think I take away from this bracket is hard to make a good running movie. That's a hard genre of sport to make an outsider of running really get into the flow of it really there to be like who wrong the journey it's tough and i think without limits does a pretty good job of that given that i'm an outsider of running like i said it really educated me with enough that like i cared about the third act whereas with prefontaine i felt like i was just getting through acts like all right we're in this act we're in act two act three here comes act four done both movies are pretty well paced though i will say that that's one of the benefits of both of them they're in terms of pacing and like just structure movie both those movies knock them out fine in terms of just viewability but I will say, being honest, Prefontaine was more of a chore to get through. Yeah, I have to agree that as much of an underdog as this movie is for all of the kind of contextual dimensions, uh, where it sits in the very dusty catacombs of cinema's canon of 90 sports movies as well, I think that it is a slight bit overrated just because it doesn't stand up to Without Limits in too many ways. Um, I had to sit on it for a few days because one was very convincing. He he likes Prefontaine a lot and made a lot of great points. But at the end of the day, I just think that as a predominant viewer of cinematic language, as opposed to the language of running and the the very nuanced hints and clues and winks that they give, perhaps like a, a seasoned track and field runner, I just think that Prefontaine is far, far inferior. Uh, as sad as it is to say, I think that Steve James put out one of the greatest sports documentaries of all time, but is not cut for the fictional realm of movie making. And I don't know how long his career went after this, but I believe not very long. So uh, this was an interesting experiment for him, but it just showed very amateurish qualities. For that reason, I think it's overrated. And if you go to watch a Prefontaine movie, go to watch Without Limits. If you really are a obsessed with Prefontaine, check this out for sure. Or if you're on like a Jared Leto marathon, uh, check it out as well. But besides that, I think uh, right now let's get into our reviews really quickly. So on Rotten Tomatoes, Prefontaine has a 56% by critics and a 78% by the audience score. So a little bit surprising there that it actually has a nice yummy popcorn emoji representing that people liked it enough that it didn't have the splat. So what critical reviews did you gravitate towards the little blurbs on Rotten Tomatoes? All right. Maria Schneider of AV Club writes, These shortcomings prevent Prefontaine from transcending the sports bio genre, but still a vigorous, passionate piece of movie making. Complimentary. I disagree with that. I don't find it as passionate, as I said, as Without Limits. I feel that's part of the problem I think with this is it lacks conveying the passion of uh, a lot of these characters, uh, even Prefontaine. I feel like we don't get enough of the what makes him so motivated as we did with Without Limits. Yeah, good point. I think it's just a little bit hyperbolic for this film. I didn't get vigor or passion from it as much as I would have liked to. Almost feels antithetical to say that about any film with Jared Leto because that's all he's going for, like so full <laughs> throttle. But he's just not padded with enough meat. Um, there's not enough pulp and flesh around him to really, I don't know, make me feel that enthusiastic about this. Um, so I'm going to go with Lisa Allspector from the Chicago Reader. And she just wrote her blurb. The result is both too earnest and too campy. I agree. I love that dichotomy that Lisa calls out. It's both too sincere and too just kitschy. Like the, there's moments that are unironically bad and yet they are not trying to be unironically bad. So we've mentioned a few of them, just some of the one-liners just miss the mark 
and dated terribly. So what else did you find? So this one comes from John Hartle of the Seattle Times. Uh, John writes, the most poignant aspects of Prefontaine has to do with the title character's adjustment to relative failure. Now, this is what I have to disagree with, particularly in Prefontaine. I feel like he does not adjust to failure very well in this one. It does not do a good job. It does a lot of just the 180 shifts here of problems been solved behind the scenes. Now we're at this point now. And particularly with him, like I said, him being the ambassador of uh, amateur athletes, we do have a good scene with him kind of throwing a fit in a trailer, right? Where he's supposed to be retrospectively looking at, again that his actions impact others. But again, it's it's just such a small part, just a little self-serving of Prefontaine. Is, it's, there's too many of these moments of like of being like self-serving. He doesn't adjust to failure well. And that's one of the things you want to take away, I think, of this Prefontaine story. If we, if we could take away anything from the Prefontaine story, just looking at both of them is that Prefontaine probably didn't adjust to failure very well and ultimately led to his death. That's a, I think that's a fair thesis, like regardless of without even looking in too much history of what is the legacy of Prefontaine. Completely disagree with this review. I feel like this movie is, is basically like is rounding down the edges of why he fails, ultimately. Very nice extrapolation. Perfectly said. I also gravitated towards Todd McCarthy's one-liner on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's uh, pretty funny. He says, Prefontaine gets to the finish line in reasonable shape, despite plenty of sloppy running along the way. Definitely buy that. I feel like... By the end, it improves. It's not the worst film, but it starts off so, so terribly with the, with the music and the, the background story of him trying out all these different sports. You know, the airport scene with the girlfriend. There's so many bad moments, but, mm-hmm. but overall, it's, an, it's a decent viewing. It's not great. I, as I said, it's overrated, but, but it's, it's not a complete and utter waste of time by any stretch of the imagination. Another interesting one is by Garth Stahl. Uh, another pun-filled one, and he says Prefontaine's cocky competitiveness overstrides his good qualities. Uh, <laughs> I, I definitely agree that that almost is with the film as well. Like it, it's attempts to do quirky stuff, like the documentary elements, actually is a distraction and detracts from the story. So for me, this was more of a miss. Did you find any other on Rotten Tomatoes, or should we move over to Letterbox? No, let's move over to Letterbox. So this first one from Letterbox comes from Ethan Mitchell who gave it four stars. Uh, Ethan writes, I grew up running track and cross country. And this film was a film I'd watch on replay and before every meter race I ran. It gets an eight out of 10 for me purely because of the nostalgia value it holds. Take me back to my days on the track. Again, I, I, I just think that's worth pointing out because like you said with our, our guests, there is a, I think a nostalgia factor for people who actually run who don't, like we said, need that didactic explanation of you know what running is or what competitive running is. And just like we mentioned before, like I said, I said we used, I used to watch you know Mighty Ducks before you know, hockey practice and stuff like that, just because of you know again nostalgia and just the comparison of what you're going to do versus what you're watching. So I, I completely relate to this review. Yeah, I think that that really echoed one's opinion on it. So I think that's it's intriguing to hear someone else say that. I think it's a good film for runners, and it's something that I just not privy to. Uh, so I found one by Max. He gave it one and a half stars and he wrote, I find it hard to believe that Steve James directed this film three years after he made Hoop Dreams. The disparity in filmmaking between the two films is overwhelming. Prefontaine might very well be a great true story, but it's depicted in a tiresome manner. On the surface, the camera work is so sloppy, lazy, and inconsistent, and the editing doesn't help it feel any more natural either. The visuals of Prefontaine play more like an incoherent blend of segments of a man's life without much cohesion or intrigue to move things along smoothly. This film feels more like a bad 80s movie than a professionally made late 90s sports film. There are way too many talented people for this finished product. And actually continues to go on to actually describe very much the things that we have said and reiterate and reverberate kind of our, our criticisms of the film. So yeah, I just think that Max does a, a very nice job of in a review succinctly wrapping up 
the the flaws of this film. What else did you find? On- yeah. yeah, this one comes from Sloppy McGee. I like that name, kid. It's a funny name. According to Sloppy McGee, he writes, or he or she writes, the lesser of the Steve Prefontaine films. Steve James, who directed uh, The Wonderful Hoop Streams, just misses with this one. He gets it mirrored in trying, in trying to set a retrospective of fictional talking heads. Zero impact and borderline laughable, partially because of the bad makeup aging attempted in those shots, uh, referen- referencing that talking heads uh, aspect. Plus, the film spends a long time focusing on Prefontaine's bad attitude and not enough redemption and bring us back to actually liking our protagonist. I do agree with most of that. Um, I think it doesn't focus on his bad attitude enough. And what I mean by enough, it doesn't explore it enough to make me not only understand, but get why he has a bad attitude, to accept the bad attitude as part of it. Whereas, uh, as I said, with, without limits, we get the bad attitude comes from a desire to win. The desire to win comes from a desire to be perfect, right? It's explained much more clearly and without limits. Agreed, agreed. Uh, so the last one that I found is Jed Flood. He gave it three stars and he wrote, glad Leto opted to not take the Cesar Romero mustache route for his Joker. Although it minusly might have helped. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty funny take. Uh, yeah, the mustache works. Uh, what did you think about the costumes of Leto in this film? Oh, actually, they're fine. I, I think the costumes are okay. Like, honestly, in both of them, like, I think they nailed the period adequately. Especially, like you said, when you get the cutscenes of him and the actual footage of Prefontaine, like, they look comparable with the hairdo and the mustache and, like, the kind of, like, wiry but, like, built body. Like, I think both him and Crude, like, were just good casting in general for, for this character. The body type and, like, you mentioned the intensity and, like, their eyes when they're running. Although I think Without Limits has just better camera work on capturing the eyes when they're actually running uh, than Prefontaine did. And Prefontaine did have a cool camera technique that Without Limits didn't have, but they didn't execute it enough, I thought. And that's that over-the-shoulder shot of, like, the lead runner where you see Jared Leto behind. It's it's used just, again, to show, like, his positioning. But I feel like it could have been used a little more, like, to really just capture the facial expressions and really capture, like, the, again, like, the roundness of the, of the track and whatnot. But the shots where you do see that, I thought, like, they just, they, they stood out. They're pretty stark. Yeah, I love they pointed that out. I love what you point out, those cool cinematic directorial techniques that are pretty easy not to pick up on because they fall into the background, right, of your viewing. But that formalist perspective was really cool. Thanks for that. And that pretty much wraps it up for this episode. We're also getting close to the end of our Olympic sports movie mini marathon or mini tournament. Uh, We have a few more to go. We have race, which should be really interesting. And we have personal best. We are also going to quickly do a completely different episode. We're going to throw it in here about competitive Frisbee and a documentary on that with our friend Raj, who is a professional Frisbee player and coach. Have you ever watched or played professional Frisbee? And are you excited for that? The only Frisbeeing I've done, and I actually did a little Frisbee golf recently at a wedding, but that's it. It's Frisbee golf. I've been to like little Frisbee golf courts, which are cool. I'm not very good at it. It is a lot of fun though. Uh, but I've seen like, uh, was it Frisbee? Uh, like the one that looks like rugby with Frisbee, like Frisbee football, or whatever. That looks pretty brutal. It looks fun. But this is a sport I'm interested in, like just learning more about all these. I'm always just these little niche sports have these like kind of like tightly knit communities that you know have events and hold competitions i'm always interested in that so i'm looking forward to, to like hearing about you know from someone within that community same same i like that you said exactly the two factors that intrigue me uh, that it's a niche sport that it has a really really tight-knit community so i'm interested as well i know almost nothing about professional frisbee so i'm going to just 
interrogate uh, Raj a, a ton uh, and learn all about this sport. I'm excited. I hope you are as well to our audience. And I think it's to be one of our more informative mm-hmm. podcasts. I think most people in the general public don't know too much about the sport or the culture. And so we're going to learn a lot as well. The documentary itself looks intriguing too. It's about the creation of the sport in the late 80s or early 90s in New York City. So it came out of this small group of blue collar workers in New York. So I'm excited for that one. Thanks for listening to this and like, subscribe, talk shit about us wherever you interact with Cinematic Underdogs. Thanks for listening, everyone. Later.